0: The Ulster Workers' Council Strike 1974 Part 9 Who Do They Think They Are? It was now Saturday 25th of May 1974, day 11 of the UWC strike and while the executive and the UWC waited for the British government to make the move, back in London in what became the most memorable event of the strike, Harold Wilson was preparing a speech. Ill-tempered and as history shows utterly contemptuous of Ulster Protestants whose every act of self-defense he viewed as an act of unprovoked aggression and whose every protestation was simple obstinacy. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland busily scrutinised and redrafted his television address. As for the speechwriter, mainly responsible, Fisk points the finger at Dr Bernard Donoghue, Wilson Senior Policy Adviser. Given it was widely publicised that the British Prime Minister was about to make a televised address, Everyone knew something big was in the offing, something of enormous importance. The executive took heart, believing it to be a game changer, to reinvigorate their chances and demonstrate both their steel and their reach. As for the UWC, they watched and they waited with an increasing degree of real anxiety and with good reason. The UWC had worked out something was in the offing regarding their potential arrest when, on the Thursday... Uh, three days before in the House of Commons, Merlin Rees had engaged in a verbal exchange with Ian Paisley. In their exchange it looked like Rees was revealing the thinking in Whitehall that the UWC had gone too far and needed to be accorded swifter more direct methods. Rees in his memoirs recollects the exchange reciting his accusation that it is a matter of regret that certain members of this House should attempt to set up a provisional government in Northern Ireland by issuing their own ration books and so on and then come here and draw pay as democrats. The honourable gentleman knows that permit cards are being issued in Northern Ireland by those with whom he associates. The honourable gentleman cannot have double standards and be a democrat here and a demagogue in Northern Ireland. He does not relate that Paisley challenged him to name those people and arrest them. This very unparliamentary language will give real concern for the parliamentarians among the UWC's number suspect that the words used a provisional government was an open warning to the uwc that if they persisted they risked being arrested for treason every man jack of them as faulkner would say in his inevitable phraseology no one writes fisk doubted that the broadcast would coincide with some decisive military maneuver against the uwc there was after all no point in addressing the entire nation of the united kingdom if there wasn't something of great importance to say and the papers on Friday had carried speculation that the army would be sent into the oil refineries and wrest their power over petrol and transport off them. And their entire economic reach into commerce, industry and agriculture would be gone. But alone, this initiative hardly merited a televised address to the entire British nation by the Prime Minister. The UWC were certain something much, much larger was in the offing. And the only cards left to the government was to implement the oil plan and also to arrest the strike leaders. But this did not get round the risk of a walkout of the power station workers. But could the mass arrest of the UWC leadership in one fell swoop end the strike? Leaderless, would the power station workers and others involved in key industries go back to work through abandoned barricades? The thought was seriously considered, but the final decision lay in the hands of one man alone, the Prime Minister Harold Wilson. And as Fisk relates, it does appear that at one stage that morning that Harold Wilson was preparing for a broadcast of some gravity. He had been deeply impressed by the Army's argument at Cabinet, but several ministers, silken among them, had considered the question of avoiding the need for a military strike-breaking exercise by the simple expedient of arresting the UWC leaders. The UWC men in Hawthornden Road were, by any definition, in the process of staging a coup d'etat, and in law, this was treason. Might Wilson wondered, the killings at Balamina have swayed public opinion enough to support the arrests? And that too went into his speech, as his anti-loyalist rant, as proof of the UWC's thuggery, was now building up a momentum of its own. But as regards the UWC being guilty of treason, he did have a fair point. The rest of the uwc were running and controlling all sections of protestant life the elected right honorable members of parliament 11 in number were supporting the paralysation and parallel extrajudicial and legal governance of northern ireland paisley himself an elected representative of the house of commons was reported as marching with hooded men with clubs through lorne that very night before there was footage so he could hardly deny it indeed in an interview on the 31st of may 1974 after the strike Reese confirmed that, quote, legal advice had been taken during the strike on individual involvement in it. In this he alludes to the issue of conspiracy, which could only relate to conspiracy to commit high treason. The British government had given very serious thought to arresting the UWC leaders, but the decision lay on Wilson's hand. Within the first draft of the speech, Wilson included the word rebellion, and according to Fisk, this fact is attested by two witnesses who claimed that in the early version the phrase rebellion against the crown was used. Lord Hailsham, the Lord Chancellor sitting in the wool sack in the House of Lords, the head of the British judiciary, was indeed referring to the UWC actions as open treason. The tone, states Fisk, of the proposed broadcast was condemning and laudatory in equal measures. The UWC held up as fascist demagogues and the people of Northern Ireland as long-suffering moderates who only wanted the striker's yoke taken from their shoulders in order to return to work. But eyes were watching even this. Between 12 noon and 2pm Wilson sharply changed the mood and tone of his speech. The new rephrasing ignored the widespread majority support for the strike among also Protestants but toned down the accusation of rebellion against the Crown targeted against the UWC leaders to representing a rebellion within the United Kingdom which Fisk assures us was the ghost of Wilson's earlier resolution to arrest the UWC leaders. Being in rebellion and therefore open rebels, compared to the more florid representing a rebellion, represents two very fundamentally different accusations, and gradually even this was worked on. Downing Street Telex the contact of the content of the speech, The Storm and Castle, three hours later, and the words had a seismic effect. Faulkner was shocked, realizing that the contents would excite the indignation and cold fury of the Ulster Protestant protesters. Wilson was insulting. Horrified, although saying nothing to the waiting journalists, Faulkner in his memoir states, I was working on the text of my broadcast that evening and about 2 p.m. I received a courtesy copy of the text Wilson was going to use. I was surprised and alarmed when I read it because it merely seemed to lump everyone in Ulster together as reprobates and insulted them to no purpose. They were sponging on British democracy, the text said. I made strong representations to Reese." Rees in his memoirs writes, I saw an early draft of the speech on Saturday afternoon and showed it to Brand Faulkner. Afterwards I telephoned Harold with some suggested alterations, most of which he accepted, although the offending word spongers remained. Understandably, this was badly received by all shades of unionist opinion, from the business establishment to the working class. I suspect that number 10 press Advisers argued strongly for the word's inclusion, but it was certainly Harold that determined it. He had, after all, over the years, been forthright about how offensive he found the word loyalist. But he had been forthright about more than that. Do you understand Harold Wilson? He had spent years pressing flesh among the Labour Party members in his constituency in Highton. Highton, outside Liverpool, has a heavy infusion of militants of Irish Catholic origin and the more politically active of them were steeped in an inherited tradition of hatred, of Ulster Protestantism in all its forms. This hatred showed itself like a visceral consensus of bitterness. Mentioned the term Ulster Protestant and the psychological shudders came immediately down. Harold Wilson, as a constituency MP, an outsider, and a Yorkshireman, had spent years self-ingratiating himself among his constituents, self-indoctrinating himself as to how these people functioned, how they reflected this luxurious hate, luxurious because there were not many Ulster Protestants they would have to check their attitudes in front of. This anti-Ulster Protestant bigotry Harold Wilson carried with him through the rest of his career and his life. But he cannot be singled out for this because in the early 1970s fairly much anybody with an opinion on Ulster was doing the same, up until the rebellion broke out. Wilson had no sympathy for their suffering, he was utterly hostile to their rights and irritated by their protests. This was the man who in 1971, after a fact-finding tour of Ulster, announced to the press his 15-point plan whilst leader of the opposition for United Ireland, finding, in his words, a means of achieving the aspirations envisaged half a century ago of progress towards the United Ireland. This same man, a about eight days after an IRA bomb went off in the busy Abercorn restaurant, which killed two and very badly mutilated 135, mostly young women, mostly young Catholic women, to the universal condemnation of Catholics and Protestants alike, met the IRA in Dublin and described the IRA as a disciplined and efficient organisation. Faulkner, then still Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, suggested in disgust that the Leader of the Opposition should come up and visit the results of IRA efficiency in the hospital wards across Northern Ireland. And when journalists asked Wilson for a response to Faulkner's comments as Wilson boarded his plane from Dublin to London, Wilson mocked that his reply would be, quote-unquote, unprintable. Faulkner never really understood the unalloyed hatred that a fair amount of Irish-descended English Catholics had for Ulster Protestants, and Wilson reflected all of it. If any Prime Minister was going to use the military against Ulster Protestants and behead their leadership through arrests, Wilson was the man to do it. And the Ulster Workers' Council, displaying a superlative degree of native Ulster working-class political cunning, weren't stupid. Bill Craig, MP, claimed he had received a copy of Wilson's speech at lunchtime over the phone from a source in London, whereas Andy Terry, the head of the UDA, received another copy of it in the early evening. Terry's version was remarkably more accurate. Craig's came from a confidential government source, clearly a Whitehall civil servant sympathetic to the Protestant cause, whereas Terry's came from within Belfast itself. Merlin Rees later ordered an investigation of the leaks after the strike and there were at least two civil servants within the Northern Ireland Ministry of Agriculture suspected. However the actions taken by the UWC indicate they were convinced by what Fisk quaintly calls a faintly accurate copy of the earlier version. Bill Craig having seen the earlier version became convinced that the entire UWC leadership would be arrested by the British Army that very night, perhaps even before the broadcast went on air. As Fisk relates so Craig and Marno persuaded their colleagues to engage in an extraordinary operation. The military leaders, the power station workers on the coordinating committee, Glen Barr and others were to be smuggled across Belfast that evening to a secret destination in the east of the city. The Hawthorne Road offices would be evacuated, papers burnt and then the loyalist politicians, the elected representatives of the Ulster people at Westminster would sit in the strike headquarters and await the arrival of the army. Over the period of an hour, the UWC men therefore left Hawthorndon Road. One of those who chose to stay in Hawthorndon Road to await whatever befell them for their audacity and their rebellion was a young David Trimble, then a constitutional lawyer at Queen's University Belfast and an official in Bill Craig's Vanguard Party. He watched the UWC leave, as Don Anderson in his 14 days in May tells us, with a copy of Houston's constitutional law, which contained a very good essay on martial law. Harry Murray pretended to drive home the banger. Andy Terry did in fact go back to his home in the Shankle for tea, then he too drove across the city. Several officers, says Fisk of the UVF, drove halfway to their homes in West Belfast, then abruptly turned their cars around and took the Noctual carriageway around the eastern outskirts back to Stormont. By nine o'clock they had all gathered secretly in the fading old Orange Hall in the Protestant estate of Ballybean and Dundonald, less than a mile away from where Reese was sitting at his desk in Stormont Castle. A number of men played cards there, while in the street outside the UDA, some of them armed with revolvers, patrolled in case the army should arrive. Andy Terry told Murray of the phone call he had received that evening about Wilson's speech. The man on the phone, he claimed, had said, things are going your way. The next two days should see you through. The caller also added that John Hume was playing the hard man in the executive and that the British were very discontented with the SDLP. I get all this from Fisk. At Hawthorne Road, meanwhile, 10 of the 11 Unionist MPs had gathered in the office at the side of the building to await the army's arrival. Uh, What the UWC and their native cunning had left was in effect a truth bomb. As Fisk concisely relates, and I quote him in full, a single candle shone on the table in front of them, and a girl's secretary was present to record any words that passed between the arresting army officers and the MPs. It would have been Craig's crowning moment to have been detained by a British army corporal and taken off the military barracks for questioning. Final proof that Wilson's government was dictating the Ulster and that the British had no time for democracy so far as the majority were concerned. Ernie Bird, Craig's deputy, was employed for nearly an hour, stuffing dozens of UWC files into a blazing incinerator like an embassy official at work on the office records when the enemy arrived at the city gates. Details of UDA pass cards, petrol allotments, food stores, UVF membership and electricity grid controls all went up in flames while Paisley, Craig and their colleagues sat in the flickering light, the reflection of the candle flickering over their faces, waiting for Wilson to speak to them out of the small transistor radio on the table. A cameo from a Gilbert and Sullivan arrangement of Gotthard But the army never turned up, although it knew where the UWC had gone. According to Fisk, two Sioux helicopters were seen circling high in the sky, their searchlights flashing across the nearby houses like searchlights in a POW camp. The army were making a plain to the Ulster rebels that they knew exactly where they were. The army themselves were tense that night, fully expecting and briefed that a shooting war with the UDA could be imminent. Their intelligence had briefed them and all waited tensely. But what the UWC had done and were doing was outside the range of knowledge of Whitehall. The British government was trapped within their own range of reference and thought only in terms of post-colonial settlements and nationalist movements. And what the UWC were doing was far outside the capacity of their understanding and so hands were stead as minds hesitated unable to foretell the consequent action and counteraction any movement or diktat would provoke. Wilson if he ordered the mass arrest would have seen the dilemma dragged out in bail applications and juryless trials presided over entirely by English judges flown in for the purpose. The potential reaction on the part of the Protestant community on saying this would have been uncalculable as i say this was no ordinary rebellion no usual post-colonial settlement no usual native insurgency which had become all too predictable in their progress and thus charitable to senior policy makers in london as proof of this whilst the uwc left and they appointed three successors who were to stay distance from them in case of the mass arrests they also left a bulletin for the world press and don anderson recounted in full they stated The Ulster Workers Council strike is not an act of rebellion against the lawful authority but a protest within the law against the denial of democratic rights of the majority of the Ulster people. The loyalty of the majority of Ulster is unchallengeable and their allegiance to Her Majesty cannot be called into question. The British government has refused to heed the voice of the majority democratically expressed at the last election. They have imposed on the people a form of Government, which would not be imposed on any other part of the United Kingdom. This imposition is contrary to Section 2 of their legislation, the Constitution Act 1973, which requires any executive to have widespread acceptance within the community. It was no desire of ours, they went on, to plunge our beloved province into this strike. But this is the only way we can make our voices heard and our presence felt. Let there be no mistake about it. The Ulster people are determined to win their democratic rights by nonviolent means And whether martial law, the arrest of the strike leaders and the army takes over or not, there will be no drawing back until victory is assured. And the UWC last resort communique concluded pointedly, by reference to Harold Wilson's meeting in Dublin with the Provisionals in 1971, It seems strange to us that the Prime Minister, when in Dublin, sat down with the IRA, but he is not prepared to sit down with the working people of Ulster. For those still with power at that time, At 9pm the programmes were stopped and the drawling and toned basalt distinctly nasally voice of Harold Wilson came on air and addressed the nation in the most extraordinarily ill-tempered and self-defeating speech that any Prime Minister has ever delivered in modern times. As this holiday weekend begins, the Prime Minister began, Northern Ireland faces the gravest crisis in our history. It is a crisis equally for all of us who live on this side of the water. What we are seeing in Northern Ireland is not just an industrial strike. It has nothing to do with wages. It has nothing to do with jobs except to imperil jobs. It is a deliberate and calculated attempt to use every undemocratic and unparliamentary means for the purpose of bringing down the whole constitution of Northern Ireland, so as to set up there a sectarian and undemocratic state from which one third of the people of Northern Ireland will be excluded. On few constitutional issues in our history have we seen the full government party and the full opposition party voting together for such measures and carrying them out with overwhelming majorities. Agreement was reached by the Northern Ireland Executive in the last few days on arrangements for a new and constructive relationship between North and South. It provides additional reassurance to those in the North who still fear that their way of life would give way to a new all-Ireland system threatening their religious and political beliefs. There is nothing to fear here, and they know it. We will not negotiate on constitutional or political matters in Northern Ireland with anyone who chooses to operate outside the established constitutional framework, with non elected, self appointed people who are systematically breaking the law and intimidating the people of Northern Ireland, their fellow citizens, and our fellow citizens within the United Kingdom. Wilson went on. Today the law is being set aside. British troops are being hampered in tasks which were already daunting and unprecedented within a nation supposed to be enjoying the benefits of peace. Those who are now challenging constitutional authority are denying the fundamental right of every man and woman, the right to work. They have decided, without having been elected by a single vote, who shall work in Northern Ireland and who shall not. They seek to allocate food, to decide who shall eat and who shall not. By their action, children are prevented from going to school. Essential services are in peril. The payment of social security benefits is reduced to chaos through interference with the methods of payment. By the use of force and intimidation, they have condemned hundreds of thousands of workers to involuntary unemployment. What they do not realise, what I hope they do not realise, is how far they may be imperiling the jobs of Northern Ireland for years to come. And this in a province where unemployment is traditionally one of the greatest social evils. We recognise that behind the situation lie many genuine and deeply held fears. I have to say that those fears are unfounded, that they are being deliberately fostered by people in search of power. And what he said next, according to Don Anderson, was not what anybody expected. The people on this side of the water, the Prime Minister said, British parents have seen their sons vilified and spat upon and murdered. British taxpayers have seen the taxes they have poured out almost without regard to cost, over 300 million a year this year with the cost of the army operation on top of that going into Northern Ireland. They see property destroyed by evil violence and are asked to pick up the bill for rebuilding it. Oh Harold, try to separate those two assertions into separate paragraphs. So the impression was that the Prime Minister was saying that Ulster Protestants have been killing British soldiers. Hmm. By that stage, 249 soldiers have been killed. Admittedly, Ulster Protestants have killed two of them, but come on. But Wilson went on. Yet people who benefit from all this now viciously defy Westminster, purporting to act as though they were an elected government. People who spend their lives sponging on Westminster and British democracy and then systematically assault democratic methods. Who do these people think they are? It is when we see the kind of arrogant, undemocratic behaviour now going on that the patience of citizens, parents, taxpayers become strained. And with these words, Don Anderson observes, It is no exaggeration to say the Prime Minister kicked the last props from underneath the executive. He had delivered two insults to the community as a body. Firstly, he did not make it clear that it was the IRA that was spitting on, vilifying and murdering British troops. He appeared to be lumping the UWC with the IRA. Secondly, he accused the people of the province of being spongers on the Central Exchequer. It is true that a careful reading of the text suggests Wilson was referring to the UWC and its supporters. But since, by now, a very large proportion of Protestants identified with the UWC, the words were interpreted as a general accusation of sponging on Westminster. The effect was such, he concludes... That some people believe that the words were deliberately inserted and in a Machiavellian move to get rid of the troublesome executive. And yet, from the release minutes of the eight checkers' meeting, this does not seem to have been the case. Wilson meant every word. Tonight, Wilson went on, I ask for an extension of that patience for so long as it is needed. Tonight, I ask for the continued support of the long suffering people in dealing with a situation in which the law is being set aside and essential services are being interrupted. It is our duty as the United Kingdom Parliament and the United Kingdom government to ensure that minorities are protected, that those in greatest need are helped, that essential services are maintained, not by the condescension of a group of self-appointed persons operating outside the law, but by those who have been elected to ensure these things shall be done. Again, who is he asking to extend their patience? The English, the Scottish, the Welsh, all of them? Or is he appealing to that class of patient Protestant progressive socialists in Ulster? who by that stage were demonstrated patently do not exist. But he concludes, The people of Northern Ireland and their democratically elected assembly and executive have the joint duty of seeing this thing through on the only basis on which true unity can be achieved, democratic elections, constitutional government, and a spirit of tolerance and reconciliation. And in doing that, they will have the support of the British government with all responsibilities within the United Kingdom and all responsibilities in world affairs for law and order in Northern Ireland. We intend to see it through with them. John Hume had been set listening for word of the activation of his oil plan. Brand Faulkner, waiting to deliver his own speech afterwards, must have been sitting with his head in his hands. He speaks in his memoirs of two times in his life, when his determination as a public servant not to be ex-director, made his life almost unbearable. Firstly, with internment in 1972, the Christmas of internment postcards as he calls it. And secondly, during the workers' strike when his phone never stopped ringing with a succession of people who successively called him a they or simply a cunt. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in the living rooms of the pro-assembly unionists listening to the speech of their dry sherrys. Referring to the speech, Faulkner in his memoir states, I broadcast immediately after, urging people to return to work, but immense damage had been done by Wilson's broadcast, which had brought out provincial feeling against them and vastly increased popular support for the strike. During the next few days, strike, strike supporters were proudly displaying small pieces of sponges pinned to their lapels. The broadcast of Francis Pym, then Conservative spokesman for Northern Ireland, the following evening was more restrained, but the damage had been done. Northern Ireland was appalled. The reaction of Protestants cannot be put into words here. Their views, to use the words of Harold Wilson, unprintable. Even Catholics were outraged. Fisk quotes the then Irish Times reporter Neil McCafferty, who was staying in... Derry at the time, recalling her mother's outrage. What? My mother set up. Spongers? Is he calling us sponges in the name of God? The head of the Alliance Party, Oliver Napier's wife, Breege, a new mother in 1974, was only stopped from throwing something at the television by reminding herself that it was rented. Even Moira Drum, universally hated by Ulster Protestants as Vice President of Sinn Féin, an apologist for their being born back into the Stone Age, and who the UVF would put an end to in 1975 by putting two bullets in her head when she was in hospital, expressed the anger that she knew her Protestant enemies felt. It made me sick, she said presciently, to hear an Englishman saying such things about Irishmen. That was a brilliant speech, Glen Barr, exalted, voicing what they had all concluded. We couldn't have written it better ourselves. The UWC even joked about making Wilson an honorary member of the UDA. The UWC strike bulletin's words betray a real exasperated relief that the arrests, which should by rights have come did not. Strike bulletin number 7. Wilson backs down. Insults but no action. It goes on to say, Harold Wilson insulted the strikers in his broadcast last night. Apart from that he did nothing. And doing nothing is a great improvement on what the government has done so far. Up till now they have been offering one provocation after another and trying to bring about confrontations. Last night, for the first time, the government restrained itself, having been outmanoeuvred by the Ulster Workers' Council for 11 days. And now it has finally learned to be a bit more cautious. The SDLP, their call for the fascists of the UWC to be put down with a strong hand, has not been met. The SDLP has now suffered a major political defeat from the UWC. Wilson described the strikers as people who spend their lives sponging on Westminster and British democracy. What did he hope to achieve by such a vulgar and ridiculous insult? The UWC does not want a sectarian state. Wilson accused the UWC of using undemocratic and unparliamentary means in order to set up a sectarian and undemocratic state from which one third of the population will be excluded. Has he taken the slightest trouble to find out what the UWC is and what it wants? It is perfectly willing to tell him, but he doesn't want to listen. It is not the aim of the UWC to set up a sectarian state or to exclude Catholics from representation in the government. The purpose of the strike is to end the Council of Ireland, not to kill power sharing. Can Wilson cite a single statement of the UWC against Catholic representation in government? The UWC categorically deny that they have any such aim and the UWC now have much greater political credibility than Wilson or Rees. Thus emboldened, they were ready now for any move by the British government but it was the action of their own hot heads in the paramilitary ranks that almost overtook them.